Well, welcome to Friends Church. We're so glad that you're worshiping uh, with us here this morning. I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors on staff here and uh, enjoying worshiping together with you. Uh, we have some people that have been away, and uh, last night our Jamaica team returned home safely after a great week. I had a chance to talk real quickly with just a few of them this morning, and what a great week. I know we had several of them in, in the first service. Do we have any of our Jamaica team here in this service? Can you give me a shout out if you're here? Oh, okay, we got a few. Okay, yes, they got their class and stuff today. We got a couple in here. The kids are up in this class, I'm sure, but uh, welcome home. You know, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how you're ministering, there's nothing like going home and coming home. Uh, Pastor Kevin and Sally, they're on vacation and been on vacation. They're, They're getting ready. They'll be packing up and and returning this week. And no matter how much fun you have on vacation, there's nothing like coming home, is there? Um, there's some, someone else. I'm trying to think who else is coming home. I remember reading this week, uh, coming home. It's near. Nothing like coming home. Who was that? Um, well, I can't remember the name, so I, sh- I should have wrote it down, I know. So we'll just move on. Uh, if I remember, I'll, I'll mention it in the service. But uh, we're glad that you're here. And so moving on, you know, I, I was thinking about this message, and I thought about this story I heard years ago. It uh, goes like this. Back in uh, the old country, in fact, several centuries ago, the Pope issued a decree, and the decree said that all Jews must either convert to Catholicism or leave Italy. Of course, this created quite an uproar in the Jewish community. Uh, they appealed to the Pope and they said this isn't fair. And so the Pope relented to a point. He said, I'll tell you what, I will make a deal with you. Here's the deal. We will have a debate, a religious debate. And you send me your top mind, your best debater, and I will debate and he will debate. If he wins, you get to stay. If I win, you either convert or you leave Italy. And it didn't really leave him much choice, and so the message came. And there was one other thing with the message. Because the Pope did not speak Yiddish, and because the rabbis that would be represented did not speak Italian, it would have to be a silent debate. So the community of, the Jewish community gathered around, and they said, what are we going to do, and what's a silent debate? Well, they elected the most... uh, aged and wise rabbi to go and they said you go you do uh, our work for us so on the appointed day he got all ready to go put his cloak on and he showed up there at the vatican and he walked in and he was expecting the pope and a couple other people well, he walked in in this great hall and the cardinals were filling aside and the music was playing and it was this grand grand scene and very intimidating scene so he walked in and he saw the pope and he said are you ready and the pope says i'm ready i'll go first He goes, okay. So the Pope stood up and he goes, Rabbi thought. He goes, okay. Pope goes, Rabbi immediately goes, hmm. Pope walked over to the communion table. He picked up the bread and the glass of wine and he ate and he drank and he set it back down. He turned to a seat. Rabbi put his hand in his pocket and pulled out an apple from his cloak. 
took a bite and put it back. The Pope immediately says, that's it. You win. That was brilliant. Your people can stay. The rabbi in shock said, okay. And he walked out. And as soon as he got to the door, he started running back to his people. Cardinals quickly gathered around and said, what happened? We don't understand. What was this? And the Pope says, he was brilliant. He was, he was fantastic. I, I, I just have to let him stay. He says, well, what happened? We don't understand anything. He says, well, it went like this. I started off with, God is all around us. And he said, yes, but he's here with us. And I replied, we worship the triune God, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And he said, yes, but he's still one God, common to both faiths. Then I went over to the table and I took part, partook of the elements by representing our uniqueness through Christ, that we have forgiveness through sin, through the sacrifice that was made. But he immediately pulled out the apple and reminded me that we are all under one curse, one common curse for all people. He was brilliant. The cardinals are there. Wow, that's amazing. About that time, the rabbi gets back to his people and he says, we're staying. He says, great, what happened? He goes, I don't know, it was the craziest thing. He said, we started this silent debate and he started off by saying, all you Jews, get out of town. I said, we're staying right here. Then he said, you got three days to get out. I said, you can give me a whole year. None of us are leaving. I said, well, then what happened? He says, we had lunch and went home. Sometimes it's your perspective. It's your perspective on something that makes a big difference. Some of us bring in uh, a baggage of, of childhood or a baggage of a denomination or, or maybe the way we grew up that, that causes us to have a different look at God, maybe seeing only God from one perspective or a, this perspective and not seeing the full perspective of God. Last week we talked about this in the and of God. Some of us see the power of God. Some people see God as a force. He's this creative, this big bang. He's out there and he's awesome. But he's just out there. Some people see God as personal. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He walks with me. He talks with me. But maybe he doesn't have a lot of power. And we said last week the and of God said, no, no, no. God is both powerful and personal. You can't have both and you can know God in both ways. And so this morning we're going to continue on that and of God. The, how we look at God, what is our perspective as we looked at God? And sometimes can our, our perspective can get a little out of whack, especially growing up in a society or growing up in a culture that we grow up in. And so we're going to look this morning. We're, last week we were in Psalm 66. This week we're just going to turn that upside down and we're going to be in Psalm 99. So if you have your Bibles... And you turn to Psalm 99, that would be great. Yes, and turn your, make sure your Bible's turned the right way. And I'll warn you right now, um, the topic we're going to be covering, uh, I really feel like we need to use a lot of Scripture. So there's going to be a lot of Scripture. And so if you have your Bible, you might not have turned time to flip back and forth all the time. But the Scripture will be on the screen, and will be, but will be parked, and we'll be uh, using it as our main text, Psalm 99. 
This psalm is a hymn. It was a hymn of praise, and it was a hymn that, that they would sing as they came in to worship God. And so here we are in Psalm 99, and it says this, The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Your name is holy. Picking up on where we were last week, God is awesome. God is powerful. God is, God is great. And that's what this psalm is starting off. He says, the Lord is king. And not just king over Israel, the nations. The Lord is king. He sits in majesty. His name is holy. Awesome, powerful. And so you get the sense again that the psalmist is just starting off in, a, in this realm of praise to God. But there's one thing that's a little bit different than where we were last week. One, one little twist in this that you got to look at when you see that verse 1. It says, the Lord is king, let the nations tremble. Let the nations tremble. He says, let the earth shake. He's saying, yes, God is awesome. God is powerful. But there is an element about God. There is something about God that we need to fear. That power can be an awesome power. It can be an awful power. That, that, that power is a power that we don't necessarily want to see. We, in fact, if we saw that, we would be trembling. But it's understood in the realms of a holy God. It's a holy God who holds this awesome power. Holy God, he's set apart. He's different. He's absolute perfect in every way. There is no imperfection. He is absolute purity. But he's power, and it's power that can be fearsome or fearful. Praise him, but don't be fooled. This God is a God of awesome and sometimes awful power. But he's not a tyrant. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. Mighty king, lover of justice, you have established fairness or equity. You have acted with justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. Again, he's a holy God. He's a perfect God and he is a lover of justice. This is the psalmist sitting back and said, I've seen your attributes, God. I've seen this, I've seen this uh, majesty. I've seen this holiness. I've seen this, I see you as king. But I tell you what, when I look at you, I see you as a lover of justice. He says that again, justice just there. You've acted with justice. So, of course, what is justice? Brought along a definition. The quality of being just. That's great. <laughs> Righteousness, equitableness, or moral rightness. In God is this quality of being just, of, of righteousness. In God is this quality of holiness. In his quality of equitableness, of moral rightness. That's God. And the psalmist knew that, and it was not uncommon in the Old Testament. In fact, Moses said this in Deuteronomy 32.4. He said, he is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just. There's that just word. 
and fair. He is faithful. He is the, a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. He is not an umpire that can be bribed. He is not a referee who might make up a makeup call. He is not an official who can be intimidated. He is just. I remember when I played baseball, and, and you might guess, I, uh, up in, I'm not sure what year I lost my competitiveness. I think I finally, you know, you, you grow up and you mature a little bit, but as a kid, I was pretty competitive. And I remember playing baseball, and every now and then, calls don't go your way. And sometimes that would be when I was up to bat. Maybe I was not up to bat, but my team was up to bat. And I remember walking out of that, I'd put, put the bat back or set it, I'd pick up my glove, and I'd walk out, and I'd always make sure I wouldn't go across that line until I had caught the umpire's eye. And I, said, I, and I, I stared at him the whole time. That was, my, that, was my, that was my gig or whatever. I would, I, would, I would walk out to my position there at shortstop or third base, wherever I was playing, and I would, I would just watch, never take my eye off of him. I thought I could intimidate him. You know, they start throwing the ball around the infield and hit my foot because I'm still looking at the umpire. Well, I was in sixth grade <laughs> at that time. So I don't, I don't think the umpire was really intimidated. But sometimes we think, God, you know, when we look at these officials, we look at someone who we think is just, but they can be bribed, they can be intimidated, they have makeup calls. I messed up the last time, so I'll make up this time. No, 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 no. The Bible says here, God is perfect. He is faithful. He does no wrong. He is just. He is fair. His deeds are perfect. And we like that. When we think of God and we think of him in his justice, we think that's pretty cool. God, God, yes, you're, you're, you're perfect, you're awesome, you know, all these things. We like that. But there's another definition of justice. Another definition I brought along this morning. It's on down the line when you start looking in, in the dictionary. But it says this. The administering of deserved punishment or reward. This is where a, it's a culture, and even as a church, not our church, but as the church functions in 2014 in the United States of America, this is where our perspective sometimes gets a little out of whack. We love God, a God is a just God, a God who rewards, a God who is perfect, a God who is holy, a God who is righteous. But when that perspective says you've got to take in all of God's justness, when that perspective says if God is just, he will not only reward, he will punish. That gets a little tougher. But it's clear as we read through the Bible that God will punish. And so this morning I would tell you this, God is just. God is just. But we must not just leave it as God loves justice, as the scripture told us. But we must also admit that God administers justice. That's what a just person does. They love justice, but they also administer justice. But God is just. We read those words, righteous, fair, impartial, perfect, faithful. And we like that God. But the administering of punishment is a God that sometimes we scratch our head about. 
David, though, in Psalm 711 says this. God is a righteous judge. A God who displays his wrath every day. Every day, in some way or another, God's wrath is being displayed. Those are the type of thoughts we, we kind of try to wrap our mind around because it's not what we as a church generally promote. It's not what we talk about a lot. In fact, no one likes to think of God that way. um, Professor Steve Maroney, one of the great professors at Malone University, wrote a book recently called God of Love and God of Judgment. And in that book, he, he referred to a study. It was the Baylor Religion Survey of 2005. And they asked people for words that describe God. And they had the most chosen words, and then they had the least chosen words. And the least chosen words by people to describe God are on the screen. These words were punishing, only 34.4%. Wrathful, only 27.2%. Critical, only 25.3%. Severe, 23.3%. Distant, 17.1%. Now you might look at these and say, well, maybe these aren't my description of God. But as we look at this and we say, okay, people don't want to talk about a God who punishes. A God who steps up and says, I need to administer punishment. I need to be just. In fact, we don't even want to preach about it. I got to admit to you, about Friday morning when I'm sitting in the office and looking through this, I said, is this really what I want to preach about? <laughs> is this really what I want to tell people? But, but our perspective has gotten so skewed at times that we don't see God for who he is. A God who administers justice. I remember coming and we started our first series on living God's love by serving our people, our mission. That's wonderful, living God's love by serving all people. I'm sure glad the committee didn't come up with living God's wrath by punishing all people. <laughs> I wouldn't have sold real well. I wouldn't have been real popular. <laughs> I remember my first sermon I ever preached here. It was September 2010. I was visiting. I preached on the love of God and how much God loves us. I came here and I was preaching on the, the uh, living God's love and I got the love that accepts. So I preached on love. I remember preaching on love, uh, love your neighbors yourself and love the Lord thy God with all your heart, the two greatest commandments. Love is great to preach about. Punishment and the awfulness of wrath and God's wrath is not so fun. That's why I'm sweating. Not so fun. But you know, it hasn't always been this way. In fact, if you go back to the 1700s, the age of the Puritans, uh, it, was, uh, it was a little different. In fact, if you heard sermons, generally you were going to hear about the wrath of God. One of the most famous pastors, theologians, was um, Jonathan Edwards. And he preached a very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to this. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. How would that have been if I'd have started off like that this morning? <laughs> Looking out at you and saying, you know, the wrath of God's hanging over you and you and you. In fact, a lot of you, the wrath of God is hanging over. Let every one of you fly out of Sodom. Hasten and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest ye be consumed. They saw what God saw in Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge who displays his wrath every day. God's wrath was real. It was imminent. 
And if you did wrong, you would be punished. In fact, about that time, there were two undergraduate students from Harvard University. They had gone out and they had skated on the pond at Harvard on Sunday. Well, as it had, as it, as it happened, the ice was thin, they fell through, and they drowned. The pastor at that time, Puritan leader, Increase Mather, said, this is what happens. This is God's judgment on those who break the Sabbath. It happened to them. It will happen to you. <laughs> and he, they, would, they, would, they would literally scare the hell out of people <laughs> by saying God's judgment is intimate, and it's now, and it's going to happen. God punishes Sabbath breakers, is what he said. God punishes Sabbath breakers. So, wow. How do we explain this? How do we rationalize it? People have tried to rationalize this part of God for years. In fact, some have said there's an internal conflict going on between God and the Bible. And sometimes his wrath side wins out. Sometimes his loving side wins out. Sometimes he just boils over and boom, he does something. And sometimes it's this moral, moral battle going on. But that's not God. So some have said, actually, there's two gods. There's, the Old Testament is God 1.0. <laughs> He's, he's, the, he's the not quite improved, not quite perfect God. The Old Testament is the God who boils over at times. He gets angry and does things. And he's got one. But in the New Testament, praise God, we have God 2.0. <laughs> we have a God who loves and has overcome that and he's perfect. But I wonder if that's true. If that's true, then we should look at the New Testament and we shouldn't see any messages of judgment. Here's where we're going to start going through a few verses. Listen to what Jesus had to say. This is Jesus in Matthew. He says this, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels there will throw them into fiery furnaces, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly a sign of God's judgment. How about others? Peter, he goes to Cornelius. He goes to Cornelius' house and he says this in Acts 10. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. What about Paul? Paul rides into Athens. He looks around and he sees the idols around him. And he says this in Acts chapter 17. We shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Well, maybe that's just preachers off the top of their head spouting off something. What if he had time to think about it? Well, Paul had time to think about his letter to the Romans. And he penned this in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. 
And then on down in verse 8. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. For the Jews first and also for the Gentiles. And finally in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that, comes the judgment. Ouch! I'm really sweating now. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this isn't necessarily the side of God that I, when I sit down for my devotions, I want to focus on. I don't want to think about judgment. But it's not just an Old Testament theme. It's a New Testament theme. There will be a day when judgment comes. The evil will suffer the result of of their sins. Wow. Hmm. Even wraps up in Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 says this, Finally, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The reason we still use so much scripture this morning is because if the preacher just stands up and say that, you might say, ah, yeah, I've heard that story, hell, and all that kind of stuff. That's an old thing. It's not, really, it's not really part of the Bible. Well, when you read through, it's not just an Old Testament. It's just the New Testament. It's a theme throughout. God is holy. He is perfect. He is without defect. Everything about him is good. And we aren't. And we aren't. When God said to Adam and Eve, you know, you can have all this stuff. Everything here is yours. Except this one fruit. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. There was punishment. And there has always been punishment for disobedience. There has always been a penalty that had to be paid. Are you thoroughly bummed? <laughs> Is there any hope? Well, the psalmist gives us some hope. He says, yes, God is just. And being just means not only he is, he is righteous, he is holy, but also means he administers justice. The psalmist also talks to us about another aspect of God. Psalm 99, verse 6 through 8. And he does the same thing that the psalmist did last week and does throughout the Bible. He will bring out elements and factors and incidences of Israel's history. And he will point it out to them and remind them. And he does that here. He says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also called on his name. Now, if you remember, Moses and Aaron led the Israelites out of Egypt. And Samuel was a great prophet, the last judge, anointed the first king, Saul, and, and the second king, David. And so he's bringing out these, these powerful men from Israel's history. And he says this, they cried to the Lord for help, and he answered them. He spoke to Israel from the pillar of cloud, and they followed the laws and decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You, get this, you were a forgiving 
God. But you punished them when they went wrong. You know what this is telling us? And this is what this is telling the readers as they read this. He said, remember, yes, God, this God is powerful and, 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 and he's great and, and he's to be feared. He's awesome. We're to tremble. But again, he's personal. And he reached out to, to, to the very people who would follow him, Moses and Aaron and Sammy who would serve him. And he said, I tell you what, they weren't perfect. He said he even punished them. He even punished them at times because they were not perfect. But he was a forgiving God to them. There's another aspect of God's character. And David knew that. A writer of many psalms in Psalm 86, 5. Listen to this. Oh Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love to all those who ask for your help. We call this the goodness of God. The goodness of God is kind of wrapped up in a lot of these terms. Merciful, grace, uh, love, and, um, and kindness. He says, you're so good. You're so ready to forgive and so full of unfailing love. And he goes on, you know, after this, or before this, actually, he was, he was found to be in, in, in sin. You, you probably know the story of David and Bathsheba and how he committed adultery and then murder and, and he was finally caught. He was finally called out on it. And he turned to God in Psalm 51 and he says this, be merciful to me, O God, because of your constant love. Because of your great mercy, wipe away my sins. Wash away my evil. Make me clean from my sin. David knew what the psalmist in 99 knows and what we know today. God is just. Yes, God is just and demands punishment. And, not but, I almost said but, God is just and God is merciful. They go together. God is just and merciful. And your perspective needs to catch both. We need to see God's judgment for what it is. We don't like to talk about it. We don't want to preach it. People won't show up if we're preaching this every week. People don't want to hear it, but it's truth. And it needs to be told. And we need to understand God in all of his beauty and glory. But we also need to see this merciful side of God, the side that we love, the side that we cherish. Merciful, defined this way, treating people with kindness and forgiveness, not cruel or harsh, having or showing mercy. You know that study that I referred to earlier, that Baylor study? Uh, they also asked, when they asked for the words, said, what are the, what, then the results were, what are the, what are the most popular responses we got? And here are those, the most chosen words to describe God. Forgiving, 85.6%. Ever-present, 85.4%. Loving, 84.6%. Kind, the goodness of God, that's what we like, that's, that's what we want to talk about, that's what we want to share. And then even just, because just is righteous and good and fair. We like that side. I wonder if they were thinking about administering punishment. Probably not. We like just when someone else gets justice. So let's see real quick. What does the New Testament say? What's the New Testament say about this mercy that is God? Well, you remember Peter was with Cornelius earlier and talking about the judgment of God. 
Well, listen to this. He's still with Cornelius, and he says this. He, Jesus, is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. God is merciful, and he's forgiving sins. Romans 2, Paul is writing this letter that we were talking about to, to the Romans. He says this, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That kindness is one of those words that defined merciful. It's his kindness that reaches out and says, no, 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 I don't want to punish you. I want to forgive you. He continues in, in um, Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right, made right with God in God's sight by the blood of Christ, get this, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. You know, God's justice is still there. The condemnation is still there for those who don't believe, for those who don't repent. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came to deliver us, that we can be saved from that condemnation. Finally, Hebrews 9. I read this first part of this earlier. Verse 27, and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. But listen to the rest of it. Listen to verse 28. So also Christ died once for all people as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly await him. That's the good news. That's the perspective that says, I can deal with the wrath of God because I can live in the mercy of God. Both are equally true. God is just and God is merciful. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel says the wrath of God can be satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. But we don't talk about it. We just want to talk about the love, <laughs> the grace, the mercy. It's nice. But we need the whole picture if we're going to minister to a world that is hurting. There are three responses this morning that you can have to this. When you really look and say, God, yes, God is just and merciful. There are three responses. And I want you to consider them. I want you to consider each one. The first one is if you're in a position where you have not asked for forgiveness, you do not believe, the first one is to repent. John chapter 1, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. He promised he would do it. He is a God of his word. He is perfect in every way. And he is just. And if we confess, if we repent of our sin, then we escape this judgment. This very real judgment. If you're there this morning, why wait? It's probably because we don't have a real sense. Our perspective of God as judge 
isn't quite right. It's, eh, I don't know what happens after I die, but you know, we'll deal with it then. Or that's, you know, that's, that's old thinking. No, no. That's the Bible teaching from the beginning to the end. You can step into life. Repent. The second one is to forgive. Oh, oh my. You know, we've been talking about a merciful God who forgives. And Jesus, when he prayed, for his, prayed with his disciples, when he asked them how to pray, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He went on to say that you will be forgiven the same way that you forgive. Paul picked that up and he says, brothers and sisters, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. I heard this week a letter that said, who am I to hold a grudge? Who are we to hold a grudge? If it's some terrible deed, God will deal with it. God will deal with it. But don't hold a grudge. Don't hang on. But if it's someone that's just, you just haven't forgiven. Oh my, look at what God's done for us. We were facing punishment. We were facing a everlasting fire, a pit of fire. He's given us new life. He says forgive, and we forgive. And finally, the third response is tell. Do you know friends, relatives, friends, neighbors, co-workers that are standing here and their vision of God, their perspective is so skewed, they don't understand any of this. And they don't understand they are headed for a terrible judgment. They, they have rejected everything that you've tried to tell them about Jesus because they don't understand the life and death consequences of eternity. The best thing we can do for them is tell them. Tell them. Last week we said, what God has done for me. Tell them what God's done for them, you, you. And as you build that relationship, you say, you know what? Let me tell you a few other things that are in the Bible. There is an afterlife. There is something beyond this life. And there's judgment or there's eternity with Christ. Take your pick. So the response is repent. Forgive. Tell. Second Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some of you understand slowness. You know, sometimes we just say, God... Get your justice done and get it done now. Wipe them out. Take care of them. He says, wait a minute. Hold your horses. But he's not slow as we understand slowness. We don't understand God. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. His merciful heart cries out and says, I'm just. As a just God, I want all my creation to be with me. I don't want anybody to perish. Repent, forgive, tell what God has done. Then Psalm 99 closes with this. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem. For the Lord our God is holy. He's holy. And in that holiness, in that perfection, is a God who is just and a God who is merciful. Let's pray.
Father, this morning we come. We come to you um, I guess maybe not feeling the the fear and the trembling that we should at times. Your power is awesome and it's fearful. But Lord, this morning we come in confidence knowing that through Jesus Christ um, that's been satisfied. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't leave us in the condition we were in. I, this, this morning, if, if there are those out there who you're in that, you need to repent. I just encourage you to, to confess, as the Bible said. Call on the name of the Lord. Ask him to forgive your sins. And say, today is the day where I'm taking that first step. I'm going to call on the mercies of God. If you're one of those who need to forgive, maybe you need to, right after service, go over and talk to somebody. Maybe you need to go somewhere. Maybe, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. But this model of Christ and his love for us and God and his forgiveness is for us to model. And for those of you who are thinking of someone right now, a, a parent, a child, a, another relative, a friend, somebody that doesn't know you, somebody that's running away and re- ignoring all the warning signs, I just pray this week that you'd have the courage to say, here's how it is. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what God's done for me and let me tell you what he can do for you. Don't let him go into eternity of hell. Lord, guide and direct us. Lead us this week because we know where we could be and we're grateful for where we are. Lord, we know that you are calling us to live holy lives as you are holy, to be obedient. And Lord, like Aaron and Moses and Samuel, when we mess up, and Lord, maybe you've got to correct us, but you still forgive us. We're so, so grateful for that. May this message sink in our hearts and lives May we go this week to live as lights in a dark world in your name. Amen.